Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. BetterHelp Online Counseling will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. If you need a little bit of help with your mental health, BetterHelp Online Counseling is an excellent option. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's convenient, it's affordable, and you can get started in less than 24 hours. Best of all, as a listener of this program, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash other PPL. That's betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Join over 800,000 people who are taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash other P-P-L. All right? Okay. Oh, my God. I just thought of the old folk tore off. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. As always, I have Casey Thornton on the program today. She has a novel in stories out from IG Publishing. It is called Lord, The One You Love is Sick. It is earning rave reviews. It is the official November pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The NervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community founded in 2006. It has had its own monthly book club for more than a decade, and... This month, the pick is Lord, the One You Love is Sick by Casey Thornton, available now for Make Publishing. I uh, had a really interesting and open-hearted conversation with Casey. I figure we'll just get right to it. Shall we do that? Casey is from North Carolina, where her family has resided for over 200 years. And Lord, the One You Love is Sick is very much concerned with place. And it is a very astute and compelling addition to the tradition of Southern literature and small-town Southern literature. So very pleased to feature this book in the book club and to get a chance to meet Casey over the transom and to have a conversation with her that I will share with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Casey Thornton, and her book, One More Time, is called Lord, The One You Love is sick. I always tell people 
these problems are not southern problems. Uh, you're going to find these problems in, you know, New York, Los Angeles, Siberia. There are, you know, drug addicts everywhere. There are alcoholics and people dealing with with alcohol everywhere. There are children getting abused everywhere. It's just um, I wanted to examine how the South sort of handles it differently. How does the South handle it differently? And, and are you from the South? I am. Yeah, my my family's lived in this area for about two, three hundred years. <laughs> well, so like what, Raleigh, North Carolina? Yeah, Durham and then Person County, which is part of the Durham kind of um, city complex, I guess. Um, but yeah, uh, we've we've lived here for a very long time, and you know the I I never fault anyone for leaving. Um, there are people who feel legitimately unsafe in the South, and I never anyone. I mean, life is too short to live anywhere where you don't feel safe and comfortable. Um, but I and a lot of other people are choosing to stay because I believe the South is worth fighting for. Um, I, I mean, it's got problems. It's got terrible problems. But um, I'm going to stay and, and see what I can do to, to help. You know, yeah, I, my family, I, I was not raised in the South, but my parents were both from Louisiana and I have a lot of extended family, like beloved extended family in the South. And one of the things that visiting, you know, on an annual basis growing up and just having spent a lot of time down there and sort of having a real, I, I don't know, I have a sense of rootedness in that culture because of my family history, you know, among many thoughts and many complex thoughts that I have about the South. One thing that comes to mind is um, how long it takes to work out really heavy karma. <laughs> uh, you know, like the the transgressions of the South, especially like the antebellum South and mm -hmm. um, pre-Civil War South. And then, uh, you know, afterwards with Jim Crow and everything else, like it's just such a long slog and we're not anywhere close to being out of the woods, you know, and it's, uh, it's amazing how resonant the sins of, you know, what 170 years ago still are today. Well, and the, the problem is that, um, a lot of families here push those sins upon the next generation. And I think that one problem that the South has obviously is that it is um it is resistant to change in a way that is absolutely detrimental and what i was taught and what a lot of people i know were taught is that um is this is the civil war mindset of if we don't defend ourselves from outsiders, they will come in and take all we have. They will take our values. They will take our land and our horses. They will take uh, hamburgers from us. Um, they will take our rights. They will take our guns. And we have to stand strong and defend our right from the North slash, I mean, liberals, you know? Um, and that attitude that uh, just 
perpetually defensive attitude um, is thrust upon the next generation and the next generation and the next generation because it's 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 like I don't know you it's like you aren't you aren't a southerner if you don't have it one thing as a uh, you know a west coast progressive something that I fantasize about is stealing all the horses from <laughs> southern right wingers and bringing them to my city <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. Uh, there are there are a lot of things that uh, people. It's it's like when it went around and and someone was like, oh, you know, there are things about the meat industry that are like hurtful to the environment. Then all of a sudden, people they wanted to take our hamburgers and our beef and our meat, and they wanted us all to be vegans. And it's like, why do you like blow everything out of proportion? And I think that that's why I think that we are so trigger sensitive to any sense of encroaching values that are not ours and so it's it's just it's maddening um well you just use the word triggering and that's a word that's often associated with liberals right the libs are always getting mm -hmm. triggered and l listen i think on the liberal side of things or the progressive side of the spectrum there are many examples of, uh, you know, grievance-driven politics. But I think that sometimes people might miss the fact that, well, I guess maybe not. It depends who you are. But I sense that there's a lot of grievance-driving contemporary politics, uh, especially on the right wing and maybe in, in, you know, culturally speaking in places like the South. Like, is that something you feel too? Yeah, um, I I think at this juncture in politics, all we're really looking for, a lot of us, not everyone, um, but politics especially, all any of us are really looking for is revenge in some in some fashion, and you know, not to invoke his name but I told someone earlier that the the thing that made me the most happy about this election was that it made our president very unhappy and that is not a an admirable human trait I mean you should not revel in someone's unhappiness but you think about him in the White House just throwing a tantrum and you're just like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, it's hard when somebody has been as um, abusive and sort of like uh, tyrannical and uh, ever-present. You know, you can't escape Donald Trump. He he takes up all the oxygen, you know. He, yeah, and he's not going away is what sucks. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I hear you. And I think that, you know, I should timestamp our conversation just because of the historical record. Like we are talking on November 9th, 2020, just a few days after mm -hmm. uh, election day. And also just a couple of days after the election has been called for Joe Biden. And we still do not have a concession from Donald Trump. And, you know, it's on everybody's minds. Uh, what's crazy is that by the time this episode airs, we don't even know how different things could be due to the, you know, the velocity of the news cycle. And 
mm-hmm. you know, the uh, insanity of Trump. But, you know, I am very pleased with the result. And I think that it was actually not, historically speaking, a particularly close election, mm-hmm. e- even though because of COVID, the count of the ballots made it feel excruciatingly close. You know, that was more of a function of process than it was of outcome. Right. But even so, a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people in this country voted for this. And I'm going to go to my grave feeling troubled and astonished by that. I don't think, like the argument I would make to many of my Southern relatives who did support Trump, uh, not all, but some, the argument I keep making over and over again with conservative friends of mine is that it's not really, or it shouldn't be a political election. It should be about democracy versus autocracy. And I don't understand why those stakes aren't clear to people and why they aren't driving the narrative uh, completely. Like, do we, am am I crazy? Am I like overdoing it? (laughs) You know, like to think that these were the stakes and had things gone the other way, I feel like we would be in very serious trouble. The stakes were very high and the stakes were high on a human level. Um, And they still are. I mean, people are going, people are suffering. They're going to continue to suffer. And, you know, this country has been harmed in a way that one four-year presidential term with Joe Biden is going to fix. It's, you know, it's going to take more time, but we had to, the way I always compared it um, is that you have to stifle the bleeding. (laughs) You have to, you have to put the paddles on the person before you talk about, you know, their long-term nutrition or something (laughs) like he and Trump was that, you know, that artery that was just bursting blood and we had to, to stop it. And before we did anything else, before we could fix anything, we had to stop it. Yeah, that's a really good like metaphor for what we have going on. And I do think like so much is going to demonstrably improve simply by not having him in office, mm-hmm. in power. I, I think people can sometimes underestimate that, especially people on the progressive left who are like, you know, already acting like we've lost somehow, you know, and. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think that just having that craziness out of our lives on a daily basis is going to, you know, my blood pressure has already gone down a few ticks, even though it's not, oh, yeah. it's not done, done. Um, so I want to get back to your book and your work. You know, you mentioned that your family has lived in this place uh, in the Durham, like the Raleigh-Durham area. What do they call it? The Triangle? What is it called? Yeah. Triangles. The, the, the Triangle Cities or whatever. But, you know... It's interesting to know that about you uh, because, you know, your book feels like so deeply rooted in place. Um, So to come from this family that has like such a long legacy in one particular area, I don't know, it sort of makes sense to me that you would have such a firm grasp um, on uh, this particular region. Yeah, my sister is an an amazing um, sort of, home genealogist and she just digs and digs and digs and and she finds birth records and death records and she goes and she looks at the the tombstones in these very tiny cemeteries that are just off on the side of the road you never notice them otherwise um and she's the reason why we we know what we know um and we are i mean it does make me feel and it does make us feel like we have some 
ownership. And, and, you know, I joke that when, you know, people from the South and they say, if you don't like it, then you can leave. And I'm like, no, this, you leave. Like I've been here. You need to leave. (laughs) I got 300 years of uh, ancestry here. (laughs) Yeah, I am. This is where I'm from. You leave. So, um, yeah, she's just, she's been great in, uh, sort of unveiling those mysteries and we can go back and back and back and, you know, we, we can hit the point where, um, you know, before our government was even a thing where our family wandered down from Virginia. I mean, she's gone back that far. It's just amazing. They wandered down. They were, were they like nomadic people? Like what was- <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, they, uh, they settled in, um, a particular patch of dirt that we just happened to stay in for a very long time. Does your family still have the same land that's been in the family for the past couple centuries or? No, 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 no. Um, they were, uh, not wealthy people and, um, we do have a farm now. My dad, my dad has a farm now, but, um. No, we had to work up to the land owners, the the significant land ownership um, concept. So, okay. So what, and you grew up in Durham, is that right? I grew up in Wendell, which is about 15 minutes east of Raleigh. Okay. And then you said your dad's a farmer? He does farm. He's actually a brilliant, um, he designs farm equipment. And uh, he sells equipment trailers, so he owns his own business, and it's just it's hugely successful. Um, and so he's been able to buy a farm for himself, um, and he's got cows and he's got goats, and um, I think it's it's just it's been really beneficial for him to have. Why is that? Just like for his health? Uh, he is the type of person that. He just always has to have something to do. He 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 can't just sit. He can't come home from work and just, you know, make himself a little drink and sit on the couch and watch TV. He can't stand it. So he comes home from work and he works more <laughs> um, around the farm. So he's just that kind of that kind of person. It's, um, yeah, you just can't stand to be bored. So it is good for him to be able to come home and still have things to do. <laughs> yeah. That sounds, I mean, I have like, like gentleman farmer fantasies, like having some sort of like land with animals and I have absolutely no experience with this. And for all I know, I would hate it, but I don't know. There's something appealing about the idea somehow. Yeah. He, um, he bought, I think he's got, I think he's got yeah, like 50 or 60 acres, um, of just land that he pretty much, um, saved from, uh, urban sprawl. And I'm sure that the, um, the neighborhoods and the subdivisions are going to encroach on him even more than they already are. But it's just beautiful. Um, it's wooded land that he cleared little parts of it for different pastures. And um, it's just, it's, it's gorgeous. Oh, that sounds so good. Yeah. Does he have dogs? He had two dogs uh, that passed away recently, unfortunately. They were Aussies. Um, but yeah, they kind of just uh, roamed around. And we, <laughs> his, uh, male would just occasionally just go walk about in one of the nearby subdivisions and um he had a collar on and occasionally dad would get a call from some you know someone in a subdivision and they would say i have your dog here i have your dog here and he was like well if you let him go he'll come home like <laughs> <laughs> so. 
um, like they passed away recently. It's very sad, but. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And what about your uh, mom? What like is she like? I'm always fishing around to know if like where the literary thing comes from. Is that do either of your parents have a have a book like a bookish tendency? Um, my mom is very involved in the United Methodist Church and. Um, very, very involved. She's the music director for a local church. And then, um, she's the communication specialist for the larger conference. Um, so she writes, um, from a journalistic standpoint, but I, I mean, the writing didn't really come from anywhere. (laughs) Um, and I did get a, I more or less double majored, uh, in my undergrad and I got a, um, one of my majors was in professional writing and rhetoric because, um, I was like, well, you can't just, you can't just write books. You got to have something else. Uh, so I've done some marketing and promotions. Um, and since she's the communication specialist, it, it kind of lined up. I, I got that part honest. I think I was going to say you're, you're a genealogist sister should be uh, like tracing, like maybe there was like a poet back in revolutionary wartime or something in your, uh, maybe. I don't know. You never heard anything like that? No. Um, okay, so you're growing up in this town just east of Raleigh. Is that right? East? Yeah. Uh, was it, it sounds like a lovely place to grow up, like small town, easy, parents are together. Um, like, was it kind of like a, like a Mayberry type upbringing or am I misrepresenting it? Well, my parents divorced when I was 10. Um, so we moved um, an entire two miles from one side of the town to another, and um, it was a good it was a good place to grow up. Um, I didn't know that there were problems because that's I mean that's kind of the point of my book is that sometimes you you don't know uh, what other was going on in other people's homes, um, but other than you know I I dealt with the divorce as all children must, all divorced children must. Um, so that was, that was kind of rough, but I was, I, I never know how to explain this. It was more or less the town, like urchin, um, being involved in the church. I, you know, went with mom to choir practice and all of the women in the church sort of doted on me. And, 
um, they would take me home to their houses for, you know, food and Thanksgiving dinner for absolutely no reason. I, you know, um, and I, um, wandered around more or less on my own. Uh, I had free reign of a lot of areas, um, didn't have, it wasn't a place where it was like, you know, don't go past this road. Um, you know, if you're going to ride your bike, don't, don't go here. Don't go there. It, it wasn't that kind of place. So it was, it was very Mayberry on the surface. Um, and unfortunately, uh, urban sprawl from Raleigh is, um, uh, happening. And so we have people moving in for the small town charm and then they're like, we should really try to get a Chipotle. <laughs> and it's like, well, you moved here because you wanted the small town charm. And now you're trying to like, I mean, more or less ruin it. So, um, it is having that, that problem now, but yeah, growing up, it was a, uh, it was a good place to grow up. And what about, I mean, I guess as a function of growing up, we, we eventually come into confrontation with the fact that things are never what they seem on the surface and that, you know, especially maybe sometimes in the suburbs, like I think of my own Midwestern suburban upbringing and, you know, sort of coming to grips with that when I was in high school, like, oh, wow. Like, I think maybe I was uh, overestimating how well things were going <laughs> for a lot of people. Yeah. But what, what, did you have like a... Um, uh, like an early reckoning or some sort of experience that opened your eyes? I did. Um, I lost a god brother um, to a heroin overdose when I was in high school. And it was one of those things where um, we kind of knew that uh, he had a problem, but no one really knew what to do about it. And hopefully it would just resolve itself. And, uh, he died and, you know, his daughter was sitting there. They, they found him sitting there with his daughter sitting right by him, his young, you know, toddler. And that was the moment I think when that and people's reactions to it, um, people I found, were relatively unkind. Um, it was like, well, you know, anyone could see this coming from a mile away or, well, he did it to himself. And I heard a lot of that. And, um, you know, it's, I obviously it inspired some parts of the book and, uh, I did hear, um, someone say that he died of stupidity and I did punch that person. <laughs> um, so that was my, uh, reckoning, I think, um, I lost someone very close to me and then I looked around and, um, expected or wanted to see the community sort of wrap around that family with kindness. And I, I didn't see as much of that as I thought that I would. Interesting. Yeah. I lost, a one of my very closest friends from childhood to an accidental opiate overdose. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a scourge and I, you know, I don't want to pry or anything, but I'm just curious, like did, did your God brother, like, was it an outgrowth of prescription drug, um, like some sort of prescription that he got or was it, 
Was it always street drugs? I think it was always street. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think he, uh, you know, it's not a gateway drug. I don't believe that, but I think he followed marijuana to other things. Yeah. I feel like alcohol is the gateway drug. Like whenever I've been smoking pot, I just like sitting on my couch doing nothing. But then you get drunk and someone's like, hey, do you want some Coke? And it's like, okay. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, marijuana was not introduced to my town for a long time, which I feel like might have been some of the problem. I feel like if some people had access to it, I mean, but, you know, and I'm only partially joking. I, um, my town had an issue with hard drugs before marijuana got there. And I, I just wonder if marijuana had been there, if, you know, some people who suffered from different, you know, addictions would still be here. Yeah. Well, and psychedelics too have proven, especially with opiate addiction, they have some real promise and terms of uh, therapeutic benefit and helping people break that cycle um and i feel like you know where you're living i mean i think the south in general but north carolina that's that's tobacco and bourbon country mm -hmm. you know that's the culture is alcohol and tobacco which kill you know infinitely more people than I mean, weed doesn't kill people, <laughs> you know? I mean, really, right. really, it doesn't. Psychedelics don't kill people. It's weed or it's uh, alcohol and it's tobacco that really do most of the harm in this country and in the world. And, you know, I think about the opiate pandemic, you know, if we're going to mm -hmm. use a relevant term of the past 10 to 20 years in this country. And I think about pain, you know, it's like pain relief. Same thing goes with alcohol. I mean, there's just an article in the paper this morning that I was reading about how parents who are just stressed and burned out um, from the pandemic and having to juggle, you know, so much with kids and school and, you know, it's just, mm -hmm. it's been a lot on parents that alcohol consumption has skyrocketed. And I just think of, you know, I think of pain and suffering and all these people who are finding their way to heroin or, um, you know, Oxycontin, whatever version of it you want. It ultimately, to me, it's about pain relief. People are suffering so much. Well, um, I'm actually a, uh, recovered alcoholic myself and, um, it's been three years and seven months. And, um, I remember, and I'm mentally ill, which never mixes well with alcohol. And so I remember going to my psychiatrist and she asked the the basic questions and I'm very close to my psychiatrist. She's, she's been my doctor for uh, about 10 years now. And she said, well, how much are you drinking? And I told her and she was like, well, that's too much. And then she said, she asked the question that surprisingly no one had asked me. And she said, well, why do you drink? And I was like, I don't know, like to take the, edge off and then she said what edge and I thought about it and I sat there for a minute just in total silence and I thought about it and then I opened my mouth and I said something that I had never told anyone and I said my body's in pain all the time um bad pain and I had been in pain for so long that uh I just kind of assumed that everyone was like <laughs> Uh, you just kind of, um, especially I was, uh, 
I mean, in my mid twenties and, um, I kind of was just like, well, no one wants to hear me, you know, bitch about, you know, my body hurt and everybody's body hurts. And she, uh, sent me to various places and I went to a rheumatologist and we found out I had a connective tissue disorder that, um, causes widespread pain. And, um, I was prescribed a couple of things for that. And the first night that I was on those things, I remember crying and I asked my partner, Kevin, I was like, is this what you feel all the time? Like, is this, is this what it feels like? And he just nodded and he was like, yes, you're not supposed to be in pain. And I didn't have a drink after that because I didn't need it. So you so, you were drinking like I, I when I was talking about pain I was thinking more of like psychic pain you know like the well yeah that too yeah, okay <laughs> um, but you were in real physical pain which you know what that's the I mean you talk about gateways I think the gateway to so many opiate addictions mm -hmm. and eventual opiate overdoses it, it is people legitimately dealing with serious physical pain or post operative pain and being prescribed these very dangerous and highly addictive opioids that yeah. wind up destroying them. You know, they start taking these things and suddenly it's like, wow, that's pretty wonderful, you know, to, to not feel anything for a change. And the next thing you know, you know, it's a, it's a full-blown illness. Right. But you got, you got your physical pain under control, thank goodness, like with, uh, I, I'm, I take, was it pain relievers or painkillers that you were using or was it something else? It was alcohol. No, but I mean, um, I mean, when you went to, oh, when you, to the doctor, when you went to the rheumatologist. Yeah, um, we tried uh, some things like gabapentin, um, and gabapentin was great because I just slept all the time, and I, I was like, well, I can't be in pain if I'm sleeping, and the doctors were like, well, that's not good. You have to function. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but yeah, we switched to to Lyrica, and um, I'm on a. A muscle relaxer because I also have a, an issue with my spine. Um, I do have tramadol, which is which is an opioid. But um, I've worked with my uh, pain management doctor, and I I asked her. I said I'm having a problem because you know I'm in Hurricane Alley, and when hurricanes go through, it, the pain gets worse. I mean. It just, I mean, the, the pressure goes up and down and it's agony. So um, I said, I need something for times like that, but I refuse to leave an alcohol addiction and be faced with a potential opioid one. So what she does is she prescribes me like 10 a month and that's it. Um, and, you know, one will do me fine um but once those 10 are gone they're gone and i don't get any more <laughs> so she's worked with me and she's worked with my sort of um addictive personality and we found a solution that will help my pain without subjecting me to to something harmful and you know what what makes me mad is I'm sitting right here looking at all the medications that I have to take. And then I'm just like, you know, if marijuana were legal, I, <laughs> it could be a solution to a lot of my problems. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and 
the farm pharmacological oh god pharmacological if that is a word um steps that i have to take to uh, function could be alleviated but i also understand that the pharmaceutical industry is why we don't have it so it's complicated i know you got to get your dad to plant some weed on his uh, farm <laughs> create a pasture for you say dad it's medicine yeah and, and by the way like let's talk a little bit i feel like we did very well in this election not to harp too much on politics but i think those you know those changes are happening i want to say oregon legalized uh, psilocybin mushrooms if i'm not mm -hmm. mistaken and i think that's very positive to decriminalize and then i think weed uh, was decriminalized or legalized um you know for for commercial purposes in a variety of places. And, you know, I think the other thing to mention in a semi-related way is the fact that it looks like Georgia is blue. And I guess the votes in North Carolina remain outstanding, though I'm less optimistic about North Carolina flipping. But the point that I want to make is just that it's not a monolith and things are changing. You know, we have, we yeah. have evidence of it. So, you know, who knows? There could be a head shop in your town selling weed legally in a couple of years maybe <laughs> what's ridiculous is i'm like you're already growing tobacco like just switch right <laughs> i know that's not how it works but it's like this is a huge state for tobacco and i don't think that these people understand how much more you know money and how much you know you would you would help people if you just switched yeah it's definitely healthier <laughs> And uh, it yeah. definitely has medicinal properties that, you know, I don't know. I've heard arguments, too, that like indigenous people using tobacco in certain ways, you know, there's could be potential health benefits. But um, I don't think the way that we use it in a modern <laughs> context could ever be argued to be healthy. Uh, and I feel like when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, people using like marijuana as a, as a form of medication. Um, I guess I go back and forth, you know, I think there's, I think there's a lot of validity to it in certain instances, like your, your condition might definitely have like a real application. I also went to school in Boulder and I don't know, I was a hippie, you know, for, for <laughs> like a, a couple of years. And a lot of people are just fucking really high and just watching TV, you know, and, and I will say, I will say that, um, I will go to my grave arguing that it can be mentally addictive. I agree. I, and you know what? I was mentally, I mean, I, I smoked pot every day for a period of my young life and anything you do every day, it gets to a point where it's like, well, you know, if I don't do this today, it's going to be a weird day. But I also had like almost no trouble stopping. And I think that might be a function of my like fortunate genetics. And also I think that there's no physical withdrawal with pot. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, right. I, I don't recall there being like some horrendous adjustment. If anything, I think I was sort of relieved to like have my brain back. And um, I have to add too that like everybody processes pot differently. Like some people truly seem to flourish. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think that's the exception rather than the rule, but I have friends who like, man, they have a tolerance and a reactivity to pot that I do not have. Like my eyes go half mast. I get sort of stupid. 
if I smoke too much, I, I'm paranoid. It can be fun and funny, but it's not a social thing for me. Like I just, as I've aged, I have less patience with it. I just don't like feeling stupid. I have, um, I definitely have friends that were more alert and clever and witty and um, driven back before they started smoking every day. Yeah. Yeah. And and the other thing I notice about it too is that um, people become more socially reclusive. Um, mm. Not necessarily because there's like some sort of like growing antipathy towards other people. I think some of it's just that it engenders laziness and kind of like, oh, you know what? I'll just stay in <laughs> uh, and eat this, you know, bag of chips or whatever. But I think that was the case for me too, is that because I don't have uh, like a proper social function or the ability to access language like I like to in conversation, it would disincentivize right. me to be social. And I'm already sort of antisocial. So it just wasn't a good mix. Yeah, I don't. When I was drinking, there's um, someone asked me one time if I drank to feel good or if I drank to not feel bad. And for me, it was definitely I was drinking to not feel bad and I didn't like it. I don't like the feeling of not having my faculties about me. I don't enjoy the feeling of um, losing sort of my edge, my cleverness. I don't I don't like to just sit there and not know how to react to things. Um, so I'm I'm very glad that I, you know, kicked my alcohol habit when I did because yeah, it, I felt like I had my brain back and I felt like um, I could uh, write and revise, which is my favorite part of writing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it just everything kind of got better. And I, I think that anything can be mentally addictive if it feels good the first or second time. When you got sober, was it just an act of willpower? Like once you went to this doctor and found out, you know, that you were there were medications that could help with your physical pain. And then you said you never had a drink after that. That was it. And then you started seeing a therapist. Like, I'm just curious in particular for people listening who might be struggling or considering getting sober. Mm -hmm. Like, was that the, was that the program for you? Cause I know it's different from person to person. Yeah. Um, I, I had a therapist. I mean, I have a therapist. Um, I am, I suppose what would be called in the news, severely mentally ill so I um I, I did have a therapist and of course alcohol was irritating all of that but um once I had that first night when I didn't feel like I mean the particular connective tissue disorder I have is um is Ehlers-Danlos and your muscles it's like it's like a rubber band or a hair tie that stops snapping back it just gets stretched to the point where it can't you know retract and, and come back it loses its uh, elasticity and so what that does is it makes it makes it harder for your joints to stay safe say stable and um in their sockets and so on the worst nights of pain i would it literally feels like medieval rat torture um it feels like my joints are being pulled from their sockets. And so when I, that first night that I had that 
medicinal help. Um, I cried a lot and, um, no, I, I didn't feel the need for alcohol. I was also, um, like new to these medications and I didn't want to mix alcohol with them just kind of for fear of, of, you know, you never really want to do that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was literally once I discovered that, you know, alcohol was not the only way to deal with the pain and in fact was not even a good way to deal with it, then, um, I don't know. I wouldn't call it willpower as much as just the reason for needing it went away. Mm. Well, that's, yeah, that's that, that fast. I feel <laughs> like, I mean, I'm thinking of like really extreme cases or more extreme cases of, of, uh, addiction. Some people would be like, yeah, let's see how these pills mix with this booze. <laughs> you know, like right. not everybody would have the common sense that you just described. I don't think. Right. Um, so I guess to anyone listening, I would recommend, just asking yourself why you're drinking and you know, they always say that there's a root problem and I do, I believe that. And so if you can figure out what the root problem is, that's just getting you even closer to, to solving it. You figured out your root problem. I mean, I don't want to, and I should say too, you know, you've mentioned mental illness a couple of times and I don't want to be intrusive and it's pretty, oh, no, but, um, I'm curious to know, like, have you figured out your root problem? And then also, um, what kind of mental illness are you struggling with? So um, I have bipolar one with psychotic features. <laughs> and um, really what that means for me is um, if I become too manic, I will become psychotic. And I always mention, and most people understand this, but I always say, you know, psychosis, psychotic is a medical term. And so when I say I become psychotic, I don't it's I'm I don't mean the sort of um, funny like rabid dog kind of psychotic. It's a medical term. Um, so some people when they get manic, you know, other things happen, or if they get too depressive, other things happen. So um, when I say that it's bipolar one with psychotic features, that's that's what it means. It just means that I am. Um, subject subjective to to psychosis um and then i have uh cptsd from um a lot of childhood trauma and so um when you take those two things and you mix alcohol with them <laughs> uh, a bipolar person that is an alcoholic is a nightmare <laughs> Um, and my partner was incredible and my mom has always been, you know, absolutely instrumental and, um, was hospitalized once and that's a terrible experience, but I've had a lot of friends who have called me and they've said, I'm having a really bad night and I'm thinking about, you know, doing doing something final I always say you need to get to the hospital because what you're experiencing is not an emotional crisis it's a medical one um, so you need to get to the hospital mm. uh, because I don't feel like any human is designed to want to do that and so I believe that if you want 
to do something final, it means something has gone wrong in your with your brain chemicals and it can be fixed and you can get help. But like I said, you have to stop the bleeding and you need to go to the hospital. <laughs> and a lot of people don't want to because it's scary. And I, I understand that. Yeah, I have a friend who took his own life when I was in college. And one of the things I came away from that experience with is the idea of, again, it's about pain. You know, it's not wanting, it's not wanting, mm-hmm. it's not wanting one's life to end. It's about wa- wanting one's pain to end and right. thinking that it's going to be permanent, you know. Um, so, wow, what a, what a heck of a lot you've been through. And I feel like it should be said too, um, and you can speak to this way better than I, that diagnosing and medicating bipolar disorder is not necessarily simple. It comes in a lot of different varieties, correct? Like, and in, in to try to get the pharmaceutical cocktail right to help people find equilibrium is not necessarily simple. I have taken in my life, um, it took me, and I, I even hesitate to say this because I don't want to scare people, but uh, I have taken 27 different mental health medications and different combinations of those 27 mental health medications. And it took that many and that long because you have to have a month to figure out what's going to work and not um, for me to find the right combination. And with bipolar disorder, especially um, you're chasing a moving target because if I become depressive, I need antidepressants, which are kind of, um, well, the safer form of an upper, you know, if you take an antidepressant, it kind of pushes you up that scale. But then when I become manic, if I take an antidepressant, it could push me through the roof. And so it, it is chasing a moving target and it's, um, it's hard, but I have found a psychiatrist who, um, has been an absolute lion in my, in my defense and in my care. Uh, and I know not everyone has that. And I hope one day if, um, we can get our insurance situation under control that everyone would have access to easy access to therapists and and the doctors that they need. Mm. I've been very blessed to be able to find them. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, we talk about the pandemic of opiate uh, addiction and just addiction in general and people trying to relieve their pain. Part of it is the fact that people are just in pain and don't necessarily always know how to cope with it. But another part of it is that people don't have access to care. They can't afford it or yeah. they don't know where to find it or they're, they have some sort of psychological block or difficulty in admitting, you know, that they have, they have the pain and that they need some help. But, you know, I think about this um, in my own life. Like I've been like, man, maybe I should get some therapy. And then I'm like, ah, seems like a hassle, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the, the worst part um, and the part that, you know, is the most heartbreaking is you have to find the right therapist. And if you go one time and you don't jive with the person, you might never go back. You might say, well, therapy's just not for me. And it's like, no, you just didn't, you just didn't jive with that one person. And, you know, you're always welcome to try someone else. But, you know, sometimes it's, it takes an immense amount of, of bravery and, um, 
confidence to even go to that one. And so then if you have a bad experience, you're not going to want to go back. So I wish that it was more, um, I wish that it was more well known that you don't, you might not jive or mix with the first person you sit down with. I mean, when you sit down with a therapist, you're establishing a relationship and, you know, you, you don't always drive with every single person you meet. Yeah, I'm thinking there, like, first of all, that describes me perfectly. I've only been to therapy once in my life when I was like 23 and I went in and had like the most awkward conversation with this woman. It was mm -hmm. just like, I don't need to do this again. Um, yep. And I'm also thinking of speed dating. Like, can't we do some speed dating where you go in and you talk to like <laughs> 20 therapists in an hour, figure out which one you like? Well, some, some therapy offices are doing this um, thing now, and mine uh, did this. And uh, because I have such a unique, um, a comorbid situation of mental illnesses, I, I um, need, especially with the CPTSD, uh, not every therapist is going to be equipped to help with that. And so what this office, therapy office did is, um, or what they do, is you meet with the director first and that's that's a kind of easy conversation they just want to know a little bit about your life a little bit about what you're facing a little bit about what's wrong what brought you there and then they match you with the person in that office that would be a good fit for you um, and so you don't just go and you can you, and say, I need to talk to someone and they'll say man or woman, and you say man, and then that's it. No, this, you know, some offices are actually doing their homework on you and are, are figuring out who you would, who, who could best serve you in that office. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Like having like a matchmaker. Yeah, exactly. So I want to ask you, uh, about, I guess I just want to bring up this idea of um, connectivity among human beings, and I think in mm -hmm. the in, you know you you draw this out beautifully in your book with the the ways in which uh, trauma, like a traumatic event in particular, can have like extraordinary ripple effects, and you know can reveal to us the ways in which we impact one another to a degree that we might not normally recognize. Um, you spoke a little bit about this, you know, about the reaction to your God brother's passing and how it wasn't necessarily always what you wished it would be, but, you know, it made me really think about some of the things I've been through and how they're still affecting me. And I'm then wondering how might they be affecting friends of mine? Like, how could we actually quantify this? You know, maybe it's not quantifiable, but it's, a. Uh, it's certainly there to say that it has not had an impact would be totally wrong. And to say that it's just over and done with would be totally wrong. Like we really have a big impact on one another. And, and as a result of that, I think we have like an obligation to one another that maybe we don't necessarily always honor. I was, um, and I'll tell anyone the, the reason why I went to therapy the, the big reason, the reason why I walked in the door was because um, I had been a mentally ill alcoholic 
and I walked in and sat down and she said, what brings you here? And I said, I'm an abuser. Like I have, I have abused the people around me. I've abused my friends. I've manipulated people. I have, you know, hurt people for my own gain. And these are people that I do love. I know that it's not an empathy thing. I know that it's, you know, I don't have that particular issue, but, um, my conditions and the way that I was coping or not coping with them was hurting the people around me. And they were, most of them, um, stuck by me and the ones who didn't, I, I don't blame them. Um, I've reached out and apologized to the people that I could, and I have given space to the people who just said, I just don't, I don't want to talk to you. And I've said, that's, that's fine. Um, but yeah, as far as connectivity goes, I think that the things that we experience, um, absolutely affect the people around us. I mean, it is a ripple effect. And for me, for a long time, um, it was bad. And, uh, so therapy was definitely for me a way to learn how to, um, connect with people in a healthier way. Now that once I had my mental health under control, I looked around and took stock of, you know, the people around me and um, they were just almost just wearied. And I realized I was like, I did that. So uh, my goal was to um, better myself so that I could better those relationships. Yeah. I mean, it's like what you're talking about is making amends, which is, you know, that I feel like that word is, uh, I often associate it with Alcoholics Anonymous and the steps and everything. And, um, right. I find it of all the steps, the most fascinating and moving. Um, I have friends who've, <clears throat> you know, who've been in recovery and who have just described some of their experiences doing that. Like, especially when there's a lot of wreckage you know personal like yes. relationships that have been ruptured because of bad behavior and you know i don't know there's a there's a, a story that stands out in my mind of um a buddy of mine i guess it's okay to say this like he just as a teenager vandalized um was wasted with some friends and like wrecked somebody's backyard and as part of his amends process, he went and like, like years later, like years and years later, got sober mm. and rang these people's doorbell and explained who he was. <laughs> and and wow. they were like, we have been wondering, you know, it, it traumatized them. They were like, why did somebody do this to us? You know what I'm saying? They thought somebody. And will they do it again? Like, do we have someone out there that's, you know, out to destroy our property? That must have been really hair yeah thing. and he was like i'm gonna pay for it and they accepted they accepted his offer they took his money which they, i think they had every right to and but i mean it's just i found it incredibly moving i think they also were touched and uh, you know very human <clears throat> what's the word like very forgiving or i i think most people if somebody is standing there like trembling and saying they're sorry in a state of sobriety and confessing to having you know, an issue that they're trying to deal with and make things right. You know, I know sometimes the pain is so bad and the, the transgressions have been so severe that it's hard for forgiveness to happen right then and there. But I, I would imagine a lot of people would say, okay, you know, like, um, apology accepted. And, you know, it's not like we have to be best friends after this, but I think it is, I don't know. There's something very powerful about it. Um, I always find it moving to think about. 
I have um, a very specific, and this sounds terrible. It sounds, it sounds manufactured, but I have a very specific um, system of apology that helps keep me um, on point and uh, it's to um, explain without defending and um, offer to do like actively do something to help and if that thing is I just need you to keep your distance and stay away or if that thing is um, you know yes we'll take your money for the backyard or if it's um, you know yeah what I really need is to go out with you for a cup of coffee and just tell you how what you did made me feel and that's fine too and um, and then to say you know you don't have to forgive me. I didn't come here to make you feel like you had to forgive me. I just came here to tell you that I know that I've done something that has hurt you and that needs to be forgiven. And that's kind of my, like my system. I don't, I, you know, I tried it <laughs> a, a more free form uh, way of doing it. You know, just the knock on the door and, you know, you clasp your hands together and say, I'm sorry for what I did. Um, and the one thing you want to avoid always is I'm sorry for everything. Like, no, you need to, you need to specifically, they need to know that you know exactly what you did. If that makes any oh, sense. That makes great, makes great um, sense. And I think, I feel like so, this, this, uh, framework that you've built or that you've used yeah, it's not just applicable to people who are in recovery or trying to, you know, apologize for things done under the influence. It's like a, just a good framework for people, period. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think people have a hard, like some people in particular have a really hard time apologizing. Uh, I'm like so moved by apology, like sincere apology. If somebody really sincerely, I guess, I mean, I guess it depends on what they've done. You know, somebody attacked one of my family members or something it might be harder but um i don't know it's just uh it's it's like we don't do it we don't do it anymore you know if um if i'm working in an office and the person in the cubicle next to me is just having a bad day and they snap at me um and i'm like oh geez like okay and then they come back the next day and they're like i'm really sorry you know i had a fight with my husband or wife that morning and I was just in a bad mood and I took it out on you and I'm sorry. You know, that's the kind of thing I think that you and I would be very touched by just recognizing those, even those little things and admitting that, you know, it was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why is it so hard for us to do that? I feel like sometimes when it comes to apology, people can refrain and I have felt this within myself that you refrain from apologizing sometimes because people when you apologize to them will sometimes get angrier 
because they'll feel all suddenly they'll be like, yeah, yeah, you do owe me an apology. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? And I think the kind of thing that I'm thinking of, the kind of transgression that I'm thinking of isn't necessarily of the severe variety. It might be something that's more like in the middle of the, the, the spectrum, you know, but you say sorry. And sometimes people actually get angrier. I think that, um, they're that angry, but I think when you say sorry, you give them permission to be animated about it. You give you, what you do is you open the floor for, you know, I'm sorry for what I did. Now you may tell me how it made you feel. And I think that, uh, that's an inherent part of an apology. And, you know, if you did something wrong, I think, um, people have every right to, to tell you how they felt about it, but that can definitely make you feel like the apology made things worse. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. It's kind of like Seinfeldian, you know, it's like this, you're trying to make things better, but you make things worse by doing what is supposedly the right thing, you know? Right. Curb your enthusiasm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I want to ask you about writing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Particularly in light of all that we've been discussing, you know, you have all this physical pain and difficulty that you're dealing with. You're dealing with um, pretty severe mental illness and uh, recovery from alcohol addiction. I want to know, like, how writing figured into your life growing up, like how you started to take it seriously and think about publication Mm -hmm. and how maybe your relationship you know, was with writing when you were using and before you got sober, uh, and then maybe how things changed in the aftermath of that. Is that too much to, to bite off all at once? Um, when I was a kid, um, there wasn't a lot to do around, you know, where I live. I spent the first 10 years of my life in a house surrounded by three farms. And, uh, there was a lot of land, around us we didn't necessarily own all of it but you know we knew all the farmers and they they let the little ragamuffin you know tromp around and on their land and uh feed their horses and do whatever it was I wanted to do um and I just became very imaginative and I'm I'm just not sure I'm not sure why I'm not sure what it came from because I didn't even watch a lot of TV. I mean, Bob Ross would occasionally be on. Um, Maybe it was, you know, maybe it was him. Maybe he told me that my world could be whatever I wanted it to. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so I just started uh, drawing and filling up spiral bound notebooks with um, these ridiculous stories, most of which followed uh, characters that I knew. I, I wrote a lot of you know, little Sonic the Hedgehog stories and um, little Star Fox stories. And um, I just did that. And then I, when I got to um, middle school, I started um, writing on the computer. (laughs) We got a computer. And um, I started writing more you know, sci-fi stuff, historical stuff, um, fantasy stuff, you know, the more, the more, um, types of storytelling that I listened to or watched, I wanted to be a part of it. Um, I desperately wanted to, to live in those worlds and it was escapism. I mean, let's call it what it is. Uh, and so I started writing all of that 
you know, sort of genre stuff. Um, in high school, I was praised very highly for my essay writing skills because I just was good at writing. Um, I was not good at math. I was I was horrible at math, so I don't want to make it sound like I, you know, made good grades across the board. Uh, but I told my mom when I was in seventh grade, I was I was like, you know, that's seventh grade was actually when they started doing the career stuff with us, um, which I think is absolutely vile. Um, that middle school, you're you're asking kids what they want to do with their lives. And I told mom, I got home and I was like, I want to be a writer. And she said, well, okay, well, what do you want to write? And I said, everything. I want to write everything. And she was kind of like, oh, okay. Um, and then I ended up uh, by some, you know, freak accident, not going to the agricultural college like everyone else uh, or the party school like everyone else. I went to a very respected liberal arts school in the area and um, I went to my first creative writing workshop and I had recently read um, The Secret Life of Bees by Sue Monk Kidd and that's a pretty popular one since the movie came out um, and the reason why I'd written a lot of genre stuff, I think the the sci-fi and the historical and the fantasy, and I'm not I'm not shitting on those; they're perfectly legitimate genres. But when I was a kid, you know, I just was kind of mucking around with them. Uh, I did that because my life wasn't very interesting, and so I was like, well, I can't write about my life. You know, no one's going to be interested in that. I just live in a dumb southern town and I you know army crawl under church pews and I run around the town and play on my dad's uh, farm equipment and no one would be interested in that kind of life and then I read Secret Life of Bees by Sue Monk Kidd and the way that she wrote the south that it just glowed with all of its you know just glory and devastation and I suddenly realized that there's absolutely power in writing about what you know. And um, that's what I started doing. And um, the alcohol came into things. You know, I started writing short stories for uh, school. I'm a product of the workshop system <laughs> very much. That's my pedigree. I know it doesn't work for a lot of people, but um, I am a successful turnout of it. But I started um, going to workshops and writing short stories. And the alcohol, I don't know. I, I think just having a deadline and having your grade depend on writing this story by Monday uh, gave me enough um, incentive to work through the drunkenness so to speak, and uh, just power something out, pound something out. And a lot of the stories in the books are in the book is are stories that I wrote um, in workshops, and I just you know uh, threaded them together. And I don't know, I don't I don't think the alcohol affected that simply because the deadlines didn't allow it to. 
I was very committed to um, what I was doing. So I was able to work through it in ways that uh, I perhaps wouldn't have been able to work through it otherwise. And then when I, um, I'm not going to lie and say that the, you know, getting off of alcohol and the medications that I'm on, um, have my mind perfectly clear for writing. I mean, I'm on a muscle relaxer and, you know, any number of things for my mental health and, you know, it's a cocktail and I'm not going to say that all of those pills have made me a better writer. Um, I've just had an easier time living with, with them. Yeah. But you know, neurochemistry is a cocktail anyway. Like take all the, take all the drugs out. I mean, if you're somebody who's neurochemistry left to its own devices is like a cocktail that isn't necessarily great, um, you know, great for you. So, you know, if I took what you're taking, I might not be able to write a word, but in you, maybe this stuff mixed with what's already there puts you into, uh, like I said, like some kind of equilibrium or some kind of, uh, like healthier, more productive, like chemical stew. My, um, partner actually (laughs) infuriates me in some ways because he can drink a monster and just go in his office and shut the door and, and just, you know, pound out 6,000 words in one sitting and then come out and be like, well, that was an okay writing session. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, (laughs) how can you do that? So he has a much easier time with just the production aspect, which is where I struggle putting, putting anything on the page is hard for me. It is like pulling teeth. Now in my defense, um, I'm very good at revision. I mean, revision is where the writing starts for me. Um, I'm just throwing a skeleton down with my, you know, shitty first draft. He has a very hard time, you know, taking a story and imagining it in another way. Like if I say, what if this scene happened here? He would be like, well, no, it happens here where I put it. Like he would have a very hard time visualizing his his he does have a hard time visualizing his work in any other way whereas i can only imagine it as this like you know freak monster where i can move things around as i please um so we we both kind of just marvel at each other it sounds like a nice like symbiosis you know you guys have uh like complementary strengths and weaknesses we do um and I wanted to talk to you, you touched on it a little bit, but about the novel and stories and the way that these stories are linked. And it sounds like something that sort of happened organically as you went along. It wasn't something that you started with conceptually. No. I, I think that's often the case with the novel and stories is that sometimes it's like you get towards towards the end of the project and you realize suddenly the connectivity Um but uh, can you just speak a little bit to that? You know, like how you started to realize these stories were bound to one another. And, you know, uh, like I'm thinking of like Winesburg, Ohio and uh, yeah. collection. I mean, is that, a, is that a collection that you've read? And were you thinking of it or something like it, um, you know, that's really bound to place and to the different um, relationships and people who make up a place, particularly a small town place? 
Well, and that's what that's what it came down to. I um I definitely did not sit down in 2009 with the intent of writing a novel and stories. I think back then the idea of writing a short story was intimidating enough. And, you know, if anyone had said you're going to write a novel one day, I definitely would have laughed because novels were extremely intimidating to me at the time. But I wrote um, a lot of short stories um, and my thesis was coming up in grad school. I started my grad school process in UNCW and then I, um, I fell ill and had to come home to be near my doctors. And so NC state sort of took me in. I was like a stray that, you know, I'd gotten one year done at UNCW and I was like, please somebody take me in so I can finish this. Um, and I had written a lot of a lot of stories and I was sitting on all just a pile of them and then all of a sudden my thesis was bearing down at me and I was like I don't know what to do all I have are these just random short stories and one of the um professors there's a writer I respect a great deal it's Wil- Wilton Barnhart I remember we were um at a at a bar it was it was several of us sitting at a bar and I was telling him how worried I was and I was scared and I didn't know what I was going to do. And he said, don't all your stories happen in small towns? And I was like, well, yeah. And he was like, what if it's the same small town? And he just said that and kept drinking his drink. Like he had not totally changed my life. (laughs) Um, And so that was the moment when I was like, damn. Okay. And, and then putting, threading them all together and um, realizing that these characters were making cameos in other short stories. Uh, I mean, that was the, that was the joyful part was discovering where I could sort of link the train cars up, you know? Sure. Yeah. I love hearing, I love hearing stories like that of just like (laughs) simple epiphany, like over a drink at a bar or whatever. And, changes everything like it's like an yeah. like a eureka moment yep. um well i'm so glad we got a chance to to meet here over the transom and to put a little bit of a spotlight on this book in the book club this month um, thank you thank you so much for being such a generous guest and talking with me and congrats on this uh you know this fine novel and stories and I always ask people if, you know, if you've got anything else in the works or you have another book in the pipeline or are you just taking some time to enjoy this one? I'm taking the time to uh, enjoy this one. My partner, um, if it's interesting to anyone, um, is the marketing and promotions manager uh, for Aristic Press. And they did a book for COVID relief. Um, it's a collection of stories. Neil Gaiman did it. It's called Surviving Tomorrow. And so um, if anyone wants to check that out, the um, they're doing, they're sending all the proceeds to um, send test kits to underserved areas. So that is, if I had to um, plug anything, that is what I would want to plug. Is there a website or anything people can go to? I think I, I don't want to... Um, well, just tell me tell what's it what's it called again? Like, just give it's sur- it's surviving tomorrow. Okay, and that's the name of the book. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. That's awesome. 
Thank you. Casey, uh, it's a pleasure to talk with you once again, and I wish you all the best uh, in life and also in writing. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right, there you go. That is Casey Thornton, and her debut is called Lord, the One You Love is Sick. It is a novel and stories available now from IG Publishing, the official November pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Casey Thornton, Lord, the One You Love is Sick. Go get your copy right now. I don't think she has a website, right? I don't think there's even social media. I think she's uh, one of these people who's smart enough to stay off the Internet. Go get this book, Lord, the One You Love is Sick, available now from Ig Publishing. The Other People podcast is offered freely, all episodes, every single one, more than 670 and counting, are all available for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the program, if you listen regularly, support the show. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you have something you would like to share or say to me you can email me the address is letters at other you can also send a picture of where you listen if you want to snap one with your phone where are you in space while you're listening to this show we like to hear from listeners The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It, too, is free. Go get the app. It's a great way to listen. If you would like some gear, if you want a T-shirt or a sweatshirt or even a tank top, you can get one of those right now. Just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com, and click on the T-shirt in the left sidebar. Get some apparel. So we're th- are things settling down? Are we reaching some kind of like quasi-equilibrium? Probably not. It isn't over till it's over. I'm talking about the election. I feel like things have gotten a little bit more... I don't even know what the word for it is. 